Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. I invite you to remain standing for just a moment longer as we read our scripture this morning from John chapter 12. Verses 12 through 15, would invite you to read along with me. The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we have considered the, the reality of the brokenness of this world, over the past several weeks as we've been going through our sermon series, uh, Fighting to Flourish, we have looked at the fact that God initially designed a world with no brokenness. And the word that we've used to describe the initial creation of God is shalom. And that word is translated literally peace in the scriptures. We said that beyond just peace, it's this idea of wholeness, where everything is right. Everything is rightly ordered and rightly related. And we've looked at this picture that describes God's creation along four relational lines. And so God creates a world where there is shalom, first in relationship with the self, in relationship with God, in relationship with others, and in relationship with the remainder of creation. There's this shalom, this peace, this wholeness. And and this is what God has designed. And there's a way of living that goes along with this. We've said it's it's the way of life and it's a way of receiving from God and then giving out of what God has given to us. And so in order to live in this way, we have to have patience. We have to have humility. There's this acknowledgement that we need God to provide. And then out of what he provides, we then give back and we see giving out of the abilities God's given us to creation, to serve others. But this is the way of life. And this is the way that God designed us and designed creation to work. And yet, into this reality, the way of life and the way of creation, we see another way enter the scene early in Genesis. And this is the way of the world. And this is the way of taking and keeping. So instead of humbly and patiently waiting to receive from God and then giving out of what God has given, we begin to see taking for the self and then keeping. And this begins with Adam and Eve taking the fruit that God commanded them not to eat. But it continues with uh, the taking of wives and the taking even uh, in the case of Abraham and Sarai taking of Hagar, the, the slave, and trying to create offspring. And, and this, this way of living 
that is taking for the self instead of receiving from God, it leads consistently to destruction and death. And there's a power that is tied to this. There's a power of the world that's tied to taking. And, and when we are trusting in our own abilities, which in every case, all through Genesis, when you see that word taking, it's a fascinating word study that I've been able to do, and if you haven't, but when you, when you read through Genesis, every time you see somebody taking something, there's a, there's a demonstration of power where they are trusting in their ability, their capacity, their strength to make something happen. And, and this is the way of the world, and, and it's the power of the world that's demonstrated along these lines. And so this is where we arrive, and the greatest demonstration of the way of the world and the power of the world early on in the scriptures is Egypt. And who is the leader of Egypt? Pharaoh. All right. Some kids in the house got that one. So Pharaoh and Egypt is this demonstration of the way of the world, the power of the world. And so Pharaoh is always taking and never giving. He keeps the people of God enslaved, and he never gives them rest. He doesn't let them go out into the wilderness to worship God. He is always taking from them and holding them in oppression and slavery. And so they are crying out to God. They are crying out for God to deliver them from this oppression, to rescue them from this power over them. And this is what is celebrated in the festival that we read in our passage in John when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday because of the palm branches that were waved uh, to celebrate him is the festival of what? Passover. Awesome. Good work. The festival of Passover. And so this is what is taking place. And the festival of Passover looks back to this situation when Egypt and Pharaoh have enslaved the people of God and are oppressing them, and they are hopeless. They have no way of escape. There's no natural power that they have to overthrow Pharaoh or to push off the oppression of Egypt. They are completely hopeless, completely helpless of getting themselves out of this situation. And yet into that hopelessness and helplessness and dependence on God, we see God delivers them that he does bring them out of Egypt. And so he uses these plagues uh, that we see unfold. And, and ultimately, he uses the final plague when Pharaoh, because of his pride and his hardness of heart, refuses to uh, allow the people to go. Finally, we see the death of the firstborn within the Egyptian community. And, and this is also corresponding with the people of Israel taking the blood of a lamb and putting that blood on the doorpost of their houses so that the firstborn of the Israelites ultimately is, is rescued, does, does not die when the angel of death comes through. And this leads to the deliverance of the people of God from Egypt in this way. Well, now... As we come back to our passage in John and to the time of Jesus, there's another world empire, another expression of the power of the world that goes all the way back to Genesis and keeps resurfacing. And now that power is who? Rome. And who's the new Pharaoh? Who's the Pharaoh of Rome? Caesar. And it's 
same story, different day, right? And there's a, a way in which that oppression is being experienced by the people of God. And into this event, they want deliverance, right? They want freedom from this oppression. And they believe, because of the miracles that he has done, that Jesus is going to be this deliverer, this rescuer, uh, this Messiah. And that was the, the name for this anointed one, this king that they were waiting for. And, and they believed that Jesus, as that Messiah, would free them from Rome, would freedom, free them from this oppression that they were experiencing. And so that's why they're so excited. They're, they're waving these palm branches, right? So we've got some here. And, and this, is, this is actually something that would have happened in Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and and that would have been the Luvav is what that was called, and they would have been waving those, and that was something that they were doing as as a hope for the Messiah to come. And they're and Rosh Hashanah, they're saying Hosanna, which is the word that means God saves, and it's the same root word from Yeshua, which is Jesus' name in Hebrew. And so they are expressing in all of these different ways the hope that Jesus is this Messiah, this God saves, this one who would come and would deliver them. And we see Jesus is riding in on what? A donkey. And this is in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9, chapter 9, where we read, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was the prophecy, and the people of God knew this. And this is being expressed in their singing and their praising, and yet I think they missed the actual imagery that they were meant to receive in this prophecy and in the actual description. Because the kind of animal that this king, ultimately, Jesus was demonstrating or, or was riding on was was a donkey. And this was very different from the kind of animal who a king, from a world standpoint, would have ridden. And so if you were expecting a king, a worldly power to come into a city and establish his authority and his kingship, what would you expect them to be riding? A horse, right? A war horse, this demonstration of strength, this appearance of power, that's what would have been expected. And the prophecy which Jesus is fulfilling is the very opposite of that. And so we should have, and they should have, in this instance, seen this lowliness. That's what Zechariah says. He's coming in lowly. He's coming in humbly. He's riding this donkey that's an expression of the kind of king that he is and the kind of kingdom that he's coming to establish. But not only do we see the animal, the donkey, as this expression of humility and lowliness, but there's another animal that's from Passover that is tied with Jesus and who he is as king. What's that animal? The lamb, exactly, the, the Passover lamb. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so Jesus is this fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And, and we're going to see the conjoining of this. In, in Revelation, when you see Jesus as king, what is he described as? The lamb. 
The lamb is the one who's on the throne. So the way that Jesus in his position of authority, of kingship, the lamb who was slain is on the throne. And so he is a king who is a lamb who is riding on a donkey. And all of this is meant to display, once again, who he is. Charles Spurgeon uh, writes about this description of Jesus as the lamb. And and I want to read from what Spurgeon writes. He says, search natural history through and through. You will find other emblems which set forth different characteristics of his nature and admirably display him to our souls. Yet there is none which seems so appropriate to the person of our beloved Lord as that of the lamb. A child would at once perceive the likeness between a lamb and Jesus Christ, so gentle and innocent, so mild and harmless. And and Spurgeon is saying when we see the lamb, we see, and, and a child would see this connection between Jesus and this demonstration of the kind of kingdom that he's coming to bring. It's the very opposite of the kingdom of this world, of the appearance of the war horse, of the appearance of pomp and power and impressing and and causing fear in enemies and all of the things that would be demonstrated from the kingdom of this world. But this is what Jesus says. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, Jesus called them over, his disciples, and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, and so a ruler of the Gentile would be anybody who's not what? A Jew. So this is all the other kings, all the other rulers of the world. They lord it over them. And those in high positions, positions of power, act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. So that's the way the kingdoms of this world operate. Right back in 1 Samuel, that's the way that they were saying, if you get a king, or God was telling, hey, if you get a king, this is how a king works. They take, they oppress, they use you for their purposes. That's how all the kingdoms of this world operate. Is it any different today? No, right? There's taking. That's the, you use power for your own gain. And yet, he says, it's not to be like that. This kingdom that Jesus is establishing, the kingdom of God, is different. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. If, if there was a ladder that represented the positions of society, where would a slave be on that ladder? The bottom rung of society. And yet, what is Jesus saying? Where is the first? It's the slave, right? So what he is doing is he's saying this is the complete opposite. And, and often, Jesus' kingdom is described as the upside-down kingdom. The very bottom is flipped around and is moved to the top. And this is the, the way that Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, is, is so different. It's so contrary that whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, which is Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life is a ransom for many. Jesus came as the king who didn't take, but instead gave his life. And this is where we are picking up on a theme that began in the garden with Adam and Eve of these two ways. And we've traced this through narratives throughout the Old Testament and their fulfillments in the New Testament. But there are two kinds of wisdom and two types of power. 
And Jesus is, is showing very clearly the contrast between these, these two ways of wisdom and these two kinds of power. And James is going to, I think, in a helpful way, outline these, these two contrasting forms of power and ways of wisdom in James 3, beginning in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good contact, he, he should show that his works are done in what? What is that? What animal does that make us think of? A lamb. The gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition, so let me just, that bitter envy and selfish ambition, we see that in Adam and Eve initially, and then we see it ultimately in Cain and Abel, where Cain is envious of his brother, and and what does he do to him? He kills him, right? He takes his life, and we see this demonstration. This is the power of this world. This is the way of the world. This is the way you handle things in the world. But it's not to be the case. He says, if you have this in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Where is that coming from? It's not coming from above, but below. It's coming from below. For where there is envy and selfish ambition. So the self is focused. The ambition for me, who I am, what I want, my way, where that is practiced, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above, so not below, but the wisdom from above, which is tied to the power from above, is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. I want to camp here for just a second. Without pretense. What is pretense? So when my kids are at home, they have these costumes. Any of you kids like to wear costumes? What are you doing? Yeah, I love that. What are you doing when you're wearing these costumes? You are pretending to be somebody. So you are taking a costume and you're putting it on to cover over you to pretend to be somebody. This is actually the description of what is it? This wisdom from the world, this wisdom from below, the way of the world, what does it do in order to cover over ourselves? It pretends, right? It puts on a, a, a costume at some level. And, and we're going to see this, but this, the first costume was in the garden, and it was Adam and Eve putting on the fig leaves, right? That was the first time pretense enters the scene. And yet this is, this is how they respond in that way. So finishing the passage. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. The only way that you can live in this world, because the way of the world is the way of an eye for an eye. You know, it's the way of the, the might makes right. It's the way of power demonstrated by taking for the self. And so in this world, if you're going to live in the way of the wisdom from God, gentleness, peace, right, this kind of a life, you're going to have to trust in a different kind of power, a power that's not seen, right, a power that's not visible. And that's why the only way you can live in the kingdom of God 
and live in a power that's, that's not visible in the way is by faith. Does that make sense? That you have to have faith that there is a higher power, that there's a greater reality than what you see around you in the world. And in its dependence on that power that enables you to live this way. And Jesus lived this way perfectly, right? How is he able to, to do the things that he does, to give of himself the way that he, well, he trusts not in his own strength or in any power of this world. What does he trust in constantly? The Father. He lives in ongoing, perfect, nonstop trust in his Father, in the power of God, right? In, in that provision. And that's, that's the only way that we're going to live this kind of life where we're not taking for ourselves because we're truly trusting in the power of God, the power from above. Um, and, and so in all of this, this focus is on God. This focus is on the gaze of God entirely. And as we consider what is happening in the Holy Week, so this is Holy Week. We're about to move into leading up to next Sunday, which is Easter. But these events that we're going to see take place are very intentionally planned, And so I have an image that shows the calendar. So these are the spring feasts that Israel celebrated. And these days are incredibly important. And so the day when Jesus dies is the Passover. By the way, the Passover originally was only one day, the 14th of Nisan. And that was, that's not like the car company that some of you work for. But that was the Passover day. And that was the day when they brought their lambs to the temple to be slaughtered and that they would celebrate God passing over the Israelites. That day, the 14th of Nisan, led to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was proceed afterwards. And so we see that when Jesus is buried is in the season. The resurrection, so what we celebrate next Sunday, was the First Fruits Sunday. This was the day when they celebrated the first fruits of the harvest, praising God for the first fruits and expectant that there would be more like that to come. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. And then 50 days would happen before the Feast of Pentecost, which is when the Holy Spirit comes. So these events are not haphazard. (laughs) These are very specifically timed events. But four days before the 14th of Nisan would be what? Who, who, gave, who was that? Who gave me the 10th? Right here? Good work. Math. Skills. The 10th of, <laughs> of Nisan would be four days before that. And does anyone know what the 10th of Nisan was? The four days before, based on what they were commanded in Exodus. It was the day you would go and you would get what? Your lamb. Thank you, Karen. You would get your lamb. And you would have it in your house for four days before it would be slaughtered on the Passover. What were you doing? Were you just cuddling this lamb? And you know, What were you doing through all of this? You were inspecting your lamb. And if you saw any blemish, any little minor imperfection or issue, you had to take it back because your lamb had to be what? Spotless, unblemished lamb. That's the only kind of lamb that could be offered on the Passover. And Jesus, when you look in the Gospels for four days, he is being inspected. 
every day he's where? He's in the temple, exactly. Killing it here. He's in the temple, and, and he is opening himself up for inspection from all these different levels. And every level, every person he talks to responds that he has no fault. They can find nothing wrong with him. They can't even drum up a false accusation, right? And finally, the ultimate authority, Pilate, says, hey, I find no fault in him. There's, there's, he's unblemished, right? And, and this is essential because Jesus is unblemished. He's without sin so that he could be the spotless lamb offered to pay for our sins. But in the midst of this, as Jesus is being inspected by all these people, does he really care what these people think of him? He does it, right? And, and there's, there's a passage that I was thinking of. Dustin and I have talked about this passage in John chapter 2, 24 through 25. It says, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Did Jesus trust people? Inherently, did he entrust himself? What does he know is in men, in people? We're fickle, right? So four days later, after these same people who shout out, Hosanna, the king has come, what are they going to shout out? Crucify him. Think about that. That's what's in the heart of man. And this is what Jesus knows. And so he is not focused on the approval. He's not raised up by the praise of these men, and he's not going to be brought down by their shouts of accusation. His eyes, again, are on who? The Father, that's where his gaze is fixed, not below, not on these people. And, and there's so much that's wrapped up in, in this that there is a, a freedom that Jesus experiences. The way he, the scriptures tell us the way to be free from the fear of men, the fear of man is a trap. It's slavery. It's a Pharaoh that will hold you under and oppress you, right? And, and trying to gain the approval of other people, it's like, you know those dog races? Uh, my aunt and uncle are in Omaha, and they have these dog races. And at the front of the dog race, what do they have? These, like, greyhound, you know, races. A rabbit, right? Is it a real rabbit? No. Do the dogs ever catch the rabbit? No. But they chase it hard. That's chasing the approval of people. Or trying to find your identity, security, and the you're chasing a rabbit you're never going to catch, Right? And the enemy will use that, and he'll keep you chasing that thing all day, every day for the rest of your life. Jesus does not live in that hamster wheel, right? He doesn't live in that dog race. And, and there's a, a way in which we, we are called to, again, this, this freedom that, that Jesus provides for us. And, and this is where we, but we have, in order to do this, we have to fight, Right? This is the fight to flourish because naturally we get caught up in the way of this world. When Adam and Eve sin, they see the eyes of the other and they feel what? Shame. And so they take something from the world to cover themselves. Right? Cain, he is envious of his brother. He's wrong. He knows he's wrong. And when he sees the eyes of his brother and the shame, he takes and he kills him. Right? This is how the world operates, and, and it's so intrinsic, and, and I, I experienced this this week. So this week, I was, I was frustrated over something, and I won't go into all of the story, but 
I didn't do anything, but it was in my eyes and in my face. And, and someone from this church saw me in that moment. They watched this experience. And I, all of a sudden, when I saw their eyes, like there was just like hatred and I know bitterness all in my face and in my demeanor. When I saw their eyes, all of a sudden, I felt so much shame, right? Like, oh my gosh, they're gonna, they saw this whole encounter, they saw all, and I'm, I felt exposed, right? Have you ever been like getting angry with your kids in a grocery store or something, and then you look up and you see somebody you know? Why, why is it that when the emotion hits? You know, why wasn't it before? Why wasn't it in my heart when I was having these thoughts? Or Why was it that it's when the eyes of another person who I know sees, okay, now I experience emotion. Because what does that tell me I really care about? That person, right? And so the shame hits, and what do I think? I've got to convince them that I'm not such a bad person. That's fig leaves, right? And and that's a hamster wheel. That again, that's it's tra- it's a, it's enslavement. It's never going to work, right? And 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 ultimately, whose eyes are we all living before? God's, and He says, before His eyes, we're all naked and exposed, right? And and so this is where that that call for us to consider, man, where where is this in my and what? How do I how do I experience like in that moment God what really is a problem is my heart before you and in the way of the world I experience this bitterness and this anger and this selfishness and that's the problem right confess honest openly God deal with that deal with my heart that's the real deal because as long as I keep covering and trying to do this and win the approval of other people that never gets dealt with. Does that make sense? And, and, that's, and that's so enslaving in this way. And so this is where Jesus is able both to forgive us before God and to cleanse us and free us in, in a real actual way that makes a difference. And so 1 Peter verses 18 through 19 says, for you know that you are redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors. What way of life is that? It's the way of the world, right? The way that goes all the way back to your first ancestors, Adam and Eve, this way of of living, of taking for the self, of trusting in your own ability. And that way of life is what? It's empty, right? Doesn't do anything. It doesn't, it's it's empty. You were redeemed from that, which is set free from slavery, right? That redeem is to be bought out of slavery. And you are given that freedom from that slavery to that way of life with what? Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. What does an unblemished and spotless lamb remind us of? It's the Passover lamb. Jesus, the unblemished and spotless lamb. And so we, through Jesus as our Passover lamb, can be cleansed of our sin. We can be forgiven of all of our sin. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. 
And so we know that when we confess of our sin, when we open ourselves honestly, we drop the fig leaf, we drop whatever, we focus on God, we confess of our sin before him, we will be forgiven of our sin and cleansed from all unrighteousness. So that's this promise that we have, but also freed from that whole way of life, <laughs> like to actually live in freedom and joy and trust in, in faith. And, and that's what Jesus purchased for us. And that's what he desires for us to experience. And so that's what we're going to, to focus on as we take the Lord's Supper, as we take communion, this freedom from enslavement. As, as the Lord's Supper looked back on this Passover meal and the freedom from slavery, as well as the forgiveness of sins before God. This is what we are offered as we receive the elements of the supper. And so the first thing that we do in order to actually experience freedom, not just kind of haphazardly, you know, feel better. To actually experience freedom, the first thing we have to do is confess before the Lord, to open our hearts up, drop fig leaves, drop the pretense, drop the mask, and just be honest before God with what's in our heart. And then, as we're in that place, open hands, we're prepared to receive. And we receive, ultimately, everything that belongs to Christ. Jesus was the king, and when a king won a battle, so an an example of this is David and Goliath. So David fought Goliath. If you did not receive the elements, I'm sorry, for communion, raise your hand. If you would like the communion elements, you didn't receive them, raise your hand. And our deacons are coming around. They'll make sure you get those. Uh, We've got a couple over here. Perfect. But with David and Goliath, David fought Goliath on behalf of who? All of Israel, right? And so if he, and he did, when he defeats Goliath, this expression of this satanic worldly power, who wins the victory? All of Israel, right? All of the people who were under his kingship, his authority. And this is true. When Jesus, our king, wins this victory, we receive everything that belongs to him. We receive his righteousness in place of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. We receive his peace. We receive his relationship with God where God says to us, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. We receive what belongs to Jesus, what, what we don't deserve on our own, but what he offers by grace. And so I invite us just in this moment, just confess, open up, and then receive from God what he has purchased for you through Jesus. So take a moment, pray where you are, and then I'll lead us in taking the supper together.
confess our sins. I confess even in this week the anger, the bitterness in my own heart. And I thank you that Jesus' blood was poured out to cover and to cleanse me of that sin. We thank you that we have forgiveness through Jesus. I pray if there's anyone in here who has never actually received Jesus, who's never actually put their trust in him to forgive their sins and to to restore their relationship with God, with you, I pray that that would be something they experience even today. But Lord, we thank you for this meal that you gave us that allows us to experience the forgiveness and the freedom that you offer us through your spirit. So we pray that now that this would be an experience of your grace, of your love, of the hope that we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. We read that a a few days after the Palm Sunday experience, that Jesus would gather his disciples around him in the upper room and he would take a loaf of bread And he would take that bread and he would look them in the eye, the very people who would betray him, who would run from him. But he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Now eat it in remembrance of me. And so that's what we do today. This this bread is the body of Jesus that was broken for you. Receive it. supper he took he took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood I'm offering you grace to receive from me this cup is the new covenant in my blood which was shed for you do this in remembrance of me the blood of Jesus that was shed for you And as we receive these elements, I want to just offer to you, if if you want to receive prayer, maybe you need to talk about something in your life or about trusting Jesus or just something you need prayer for, we'll be in the prayer room uh, and invite you to respond as we sing together. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.